This is Union Days. Stories from a Union Scrapbook. When I was growing up, kids wanted to be... Astronauts, footballers, scientists, shop owners. But I knew I wanted to be part of the Union world, part of the struggle for better jobs, safer conditions, greater equality. So I've worked in and for unions all my working life. It's been a huge privilege and a great experience. Vets, cops, lawyers, medics, footballers' wives, they all get to tell their tales. Now it's the turn of a union rep to open the scrapbook of stories. The people, places, Scraps and scrapes, heroes and villains, tall tales and low blows. It's the stuff of life itself, and I can't wait to share these stories with you. Who knows? You might see yourself in some of them. In fact, you probably will, though we have changed some names and other details. Let's get started. My first proper job in the trade union movement was for the union representing specialists in the civil service. I was a negotiations officer. My boss was an assistant secretary, Joe. It's November 1986. The biggest unit on my patch was the Meat and Livestock Commission. This existed primarily to assess and apply an EU subsidy on livestock grown and slaughtered in the UK. Organisationally, It was part of the huge range of interests under the umbrella of the Ministry of Agriculture, Fisheries and Food. Math. Frankly, as a lifelong city boy, I couldn't have been more out of my depth. But one of the joys of representing specialists, especially those who have made a career out of their particular niche, is that you do get to meet people, see things and go places that you just wouldn't normally. It's all life-affirming and positive. It is. Honestly. That's absolutely what I was telling myself as the cab dropped me off outside Glasgow's city abattoir on a wet Friday night. As I paid the fare, the driver gave me a, well, if you're sure, sort of look, and I stepped out into the rain. The secretary of the Scotland, brackets, south section of our Meat and Livestock Commission branch met me at the door. It was after the close of business, and the place was awash, literally, as bays, stalls, and metal grid floors were being hosed down, the waste running in gullies under our feet. Was the water tinged red? Was there even just a whiff of the stench of death, of the fear of the animals as they became aware of what was about to happen to them? I have to honestly tell you that I'm not sure there was. The water was mucky, as you'd expect, but not blooded. The building had a smell, uh, an odour, that I was already recognising as typical of abattoirs. Industrial, a bit sweaty, a bit agricultural. This was clearly a place where processing happened. Equally clearly, animals were involved. It didn't require the quickest mind to start to imagine the rest. A colleague who was a vegetarian told me he simply couldn't have worked in my patch for precisely that reason. In here, said my host, and he pushed open the door to a large lecture theatre. It was a bit Alice in Wonderland. Yes, it was a lecture theatre, 
with a table at the front and raked seating. But the scale was wrong. The table was a huge block, easily 15 feet by 6, with solid sides. The gradient of the seating was accentuated. You would need to stride to go from one level to the next. As I took in the rows of faces, not sullen or angry, but just end of the working day-ish, I saw more of my surroundings. At each end of the front of the hall were large double doors, running from the ceiling down to about six feet off the ground. The floor was a gentle V-shape with a drainage channel at the nadir. Above me was a heavy glide rail with huge S-hooks dangling from it. (gasps) Presumably it would be me rather than a cow carcass dangling from one of them if my audience was particularly unhappy with what I had to tell them. I felt pretty dwarfed by my surroundings, and when we started talking, the mixture of Glaswegian accents and the echo of the room just added to the air of unreality. I explained the pay deal, which would unify pay scales for many different grades across government departments and quasi-independent outfits like the Meat and Livestock Commission. It was essentially good news. Unlike the previous year, before I'd arrived in the job, they didn't have to go on strike to get more money. Questions were about pay progression, assimilation to the new scale, when and how all of this would be agreed and implemented. The next day, the night before, still felt surreal. I caught the early morning train up to Aberdeen for the same discussion with the Scotland, brackets, north section. A sparkling autumn morning simultaneously lifted the spirits but deepened the air of unreality as the city gave way to increasingly beautiful countryside. The train happily rumbled across the River Tay and sauntered up the coast to the Granite City. There are times, aren't there, where everything looks and feels the same, but it fundamentally isn't. The Institutions Meat and Livestock Commission Scotland Brackets North section, their members were gathered in an immediately more familiar surroundings than their southern counterparts had been the night before. They were in the upstairs room of a city centre pub, And they clearly understood me. Alas, if only I could have confidently said the same thing about them. After the usual welcoming pleasantries, I went through my patter. I didn't quite get the chair's opening remarks, but never mind. The gist was clear enough. I explained the pay deal, assimilation to the new scale, pay on promotion, key dates and so on. And then it was open to questions and views from the floor. The next 45 minutes or so can best be described as a roller coaster ride, with me hanging frantically on the outside of the car. Were they Doric linguistic twists or just a heavy local accent? It made little difference. I struggled like an angler in a river in spate to catch just a few words, something that made sense of the rest, something to unlock what was being said. I exaggerate, of course, but really not by much. What I heard varied from speaker to speaker. (gasps) Got this now, I rashly thought to myself after one contribution that I understood more of than eluded me, only to have my incautious confidence dashed by the next man to speak. One colleague made a very well-received point, emphasising his views with short, precise hand gestures. His peers and colleagues nodded and harumphed in guttural agreement. I didn't have a clue. One of the wonderful things about our country, our countries if you prefer, is that we don't half pack a lot into a fairly small space. 
The range of how people speak is a delight to me. The local tics and idioms are a fascination, and it's always a great privilege of my work to have been able to talk to so many people on their own turf. That meeting in Aberdeen showed that not only that range, but also that so many other things can go into making people feel welcomed, or uncomfortable for that matter. My Doric ear was clearly out that day, but I couldn't have been met with more friendliness. However, my prize for the most incomprehensible verbiage is awarded to two young fellas in my hometown, colleagues behind a counter in Selfridge's department store. I was so taken by the way they spoke, I loitered to hear more. It was English, but not as we know it. Estuary-accented words, stripped of all vowels. Commission employees who worked in the abattoirs were in a strange position. These fat stock officers, as they were called, were outsiders in many ways. They were the regulator, judging the fat content of each carcass to see if or how it qualified for the EU subsidy. To avoid double counting, once the assessment had been made, an ear was cut off the carcass. <sniffs> Gruesome to some. But you can see, it makes sense. One swift upward stroke with a very sharp knife. Huge risk of injury. Overcome, by the way, by slashing away from the body and wearing chain mail gloves. But a reminder that this work has its dangers. There were other specialisms too, like the four AI staff who covered all of Britain. What's high-tech and robots got to do with livestock? I can see you, hear you thinking. But this AI was artificial insemination of pigs, as it happens, not intelligence. Though arguably, you could see how the task might be automated one day. I never did manage to get the upgrading that these folks deserved. I mean, what role can you use as a comparator to start with? But whenever we met, usually in the car park of services on the M1 somewhere... The chat about their working lives, especially the technical side of things, was certainly an education. So, so far, we've had fat stock officers and inseminators. But that's just the beginning, I assure you. Together with my immediate boss, Joe, we had responsibility for agricultural advisory grades. The government was trying to disband their unit and withdraw from this work, and the union was resisting. I crisscrossed the country to set up our stall at various agricultural shows across England and Wales. These events had a distinctive, almost festival feel, as anyone who's been to one of these shows will know well. We even had a proper display stand, rather than a rickety trestle table that was on the point of falling to bits. We were usually pitched next to the agricultural workers section of what was then the Transport and General Workers Union, now part of UNITE. I think it's fair to say that they didn't quite know what to make of us, a real blue-collar, white-collar split. But by the end of the first show, it was a pleasure to have my counterpart declare that we were as sound as a pound. As a non-political party-affiliated union, campaigning on what could be fairly described as a motherhood and apple pie issue, the reaction to our message was different. Not necessarily easier, but certainly different. For a start, the threatened abolition of the Agriculture Advisory Service was neither sexy nor an obviously mainstream concern, at least not to the majority of showgoers who were just there for a day out. When we could connect with the trade visitors, we were pushing at an open door. In fact, there was no resistance, still less hostility at all, apart 
from a gratuitously antagonistic live grilling on Radio Norfolk, which I still think was due to my London accent more than the issue at stake. Yes, it was good and important profile raising, reaching out, being seen to be there. But the impact on government was inevitably limited. We needed column inches, and they came from an unexpected source. We had prepared a catch-all press release to accompany our nationwide tour of agricultural showgrounds. This summarised the campaign, signposted further resources and information, and had a lengthy quote, apportioned to either me or Joe, depending who was doing the show in question. The trade press picked this up, expertly filleted the words, and ran it in the News in Brief column. But they were outdone by the Times. Don't ask me how or why, but virtually the complete release was reproduced. All I do know is that I never spoke to one of the paper's journos. This had consequences. The campaign got a boost for sure. Minister and senior civil servants became more attentive to what we were saying. And those who measure importance by public profile took note of my falsely rising stock. Joe, who was leading the campaign, made sure my feet stayed firmly. On the ground. Although the largest concentrations of members were in MAF and its satellite organisations, my patch was properly known as the Fringe Bodies Area. This was because of the arm's length relationship a number of those bodies had with a parent department, the Meat and Livestock Commission and MAF, for example, or because they were numerically small in comparison to the big beasts in defence, trade and industry, and other major government departments, or because Frankly, no one was quite sure how to categorise them. By far the most alluring of the fringe bodies was the Royal Botanical Gardens. Kew Gardens to most of us, although there is also an outstation at Wakehurst Palace in Sussex which was decimated by the great storm of 1987. Kew was where we were always dragged as kids. I found it then interminably boring, something my parents could never understand as we clicked through the turnstiles yet again. It cost an old penny to get in a far cry from today's inexorable march towards 20 quid. But I also knew it was where my dad started his working and union life, cataloguing specimens of plants in the herbarium and even discovering one new species. He became the section rep and then the branch secretary of what was then a much more numerous and influential part of the civil service, the youngest person to hold such a role in the union I was now working for. History repeating itself? A chip off the old block? Not for the first time. I felt I was walking on a path someone had cut before me. I would always chat to the uniformed officer on the Q Road gate on my way onto site. The constabulary were part of a different union, but relations were good, and frankly, they knew everything you might possibly need or want to be aware of, and plenty that you didn't as well. Cutting across the gardens, I could easily understand the sense of belonging, of ownership, of being part of an institution that many of our members there felt, and feared losing in increasingly fraught times. As the government pushed through wave after wave of reform and restructuring, fringe bodies and functions and much more central to government departments were converted into agencies, had to become more self-sufficient in terms of funding, or were simply privatised. Economically, the argument was not in any way clear-cut, but then economics wasn't the rationale. This was being driven by politics and a particular philosophical view about the role of the state and the duty of government. I do believe that the idiom about knowing the cost of everything and the value of nothing originated here. 
From a union perspective, fundamentally, I believe who owns an enterprise and the values, the culture underpinning that structure of ownership are inextricably part of the industrial relations landscape. Our members at Q were proud of who they worked for and proud, too, that they were civil servants. Others, particularly those in government, were felt not to always reciprocate that pride in them as they dissed the concept of public ownership and, with it, public service. It hurt offended and unsettled. And incidentally, what lies at the end of this road of disrespect and devaluation? Well, for the Thatcher government, it was the declaration that trade union membership was incompatible with national security. Sorry, 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 let me rephrase that. Was incompatible with working for the government communications headquarters in Cheltenham. Our members and those of other civil service unions who were told that they had to choose between their job and for most of them it was a career, and their union membership perceived it as the outrageous, insulting and contradictory slur that it was. Here were people who collectively had given hundreds of years creditable service to their country at GCHQ with no suggestion by anyone with any knowledge or standing that this was incompatible with trade union membership. And if such a conflict was accepted, who would be next? Spies? Diplomats? People who serviced the submarines carrying the UK's nuclear deterrent? Eleven trade unionists stood firm at GCHQ. The backlash stopped any further development of this government policy. Amongst the first acts of the incoming Labour government in 1997 was a repeal of the ban and a start to work on what became the Human Rights Act, guaranteeing the freedom of workers to join unions if they wished. Q was also interesting because it was a fine example of vertical representation. Now, this isn't randomly turning from botany to gymnastics. It's that we represented grades from the director down to the lowest, newest assistant scientific officer or technical trainee. The vertical setup at Q made sense and had advantages, but was not a panacea for, say, poor management or underdeveloped interpersonal skills. But there was a common professional interest, as well as a common employer. It was helpful for the scientific community to be able to speak with one voice about their specialism, as well as their terms and conditions. Vertical organising can also help encourage communication across grade boundaries and facilitate mentoring. It also means that union membership and participation is seen as normal, desirable even, as new and more junior-graded staff see their senior colleagues and supervisors and managers model union-friendly behaviour. The Royal College of Midwives is another excellent example of this, and pro-college, i.e. pro-union, values are embedded in the midwifery service partly as a result of the most senior grades clearly valuing and using their membership. Set against these positives are concerns that things said in a union meeting or context will be cited and misrepresented in a work situation, that problems in the workplace flow through into a union environment, thereby nullifying the idea that it is a safe space for all members, and that those in more senior positions at work will assume the leading positions in the union by default rather than popular vote. I was approached by a relatively new and young member in one workplace, not Q who was having real problems with her line manager. 
But the manager being complained about was very active in the union branch and always professional and amicable in committee meetings. The issue was resolved to her satisfaction by a sideways move within the organisation. I was surprised when she got in touch a couple of weeks later. The sense of relief that came like a cloud out of the thank you card when I opened the envelope. Well, she didn't describe it as bullying. But especially in today's context, that's what it would be. Our committee members' behaviour was apparently a bit chalk and cheese. The walls of the gardens did seem to offer some protection against the inclement political weather. Staff turnover was low and professional pride high, although this didn't stop a cheeky feather duster being planted amongst the brightly coloured tropical shrubs when the Princess of Wales came to open the eponymously named and futuristic glasshouse in 1987. It was a real privilege to see behind the scenes and get to know a bit better both the people and the working world they lived in. As well as encountering all manner of workplaces and professions, there were also all manner of employment issues too. We'll find out all about them in the next episode of Union Days. This has been Union Days, scenes from a union scrapbook with me, Simon Sapper. Music is by Scott Holmes. Production by Makes You Think. Subscribe, rate and review on the podcast platform of your choice. You can email the show at info at makesyouthink.com. Thanks for listening.